Bretons who lived in Brittany were fine and noble people. In days gone by, these valiant, courtly, and noblemen composed lays for posterity and thus preserved them from oblivion. These lays were based on adventures they had heard and which had befallen many a person. One of them, which I have heard recited, should not be forgotten. It concerns Equiton, a most courtly man, lord of dance, justiciary, and king. Equiton enjoyed a fine reputation and was greatly loved in his land. He adored pleasure and amorous dalliance. For this reason, he upheld the principles of chivalry. Those who lack a full compassion and understanding of love show no thought for their lives. Such is the nature of love that no one under its sway can retain command over reason. Equiton had a sensual, a good knight, brave and loyal, who took care of his entire territory, governing it and administering its justice. Never, except in time of war, would the king have forsaken his hunting, his pleasure or his river sports, whatever the need might have been. As his wedded wife, the sensual had a woman who was to bring great misfortune to the land. She was a lady of fine breeding and extremely beautiful, with a noble body and good bearing. Nature had spared no pains when fashioning her. Her eyes sparkled, her mouth and face were beautiful, and her nose was well set. She had no equal in the kingdom, and the king, having often heard her praised, frequently sent her greetings and gifts. They had never met, but he had conceived a desire for her and seized the first opportunity to speak to her. He went hunting in her region on his own, and returning from his sport, took lodging for the night in the place where the sensual dwelt, in the very castle where the lady was to be found. He had ample occasion to speak with her, to express his feelings and display his fine qualities. He found her most courtly and wise, beautiful in body and countenance, of fair appearance and cheerful disposition. Love admitted him into her service and let fly in his direction an arrow which left a very deep wound in him. It was launched at his heart, and there it became firmly fixed. Wisdom and understanding were of no avail. Through the lady, love caught him unawares, with the result that he was distraught and overcome with sadness. Unable to withstand its power, he was forced to give love his full attention. That night, he neither slept nor rested, but spent his time reproaching and remanding himself. Alas, he said, what destiny brought me to this region? Because of this lady I have seen, my, my heart has been overwhelmed by a pain so great that my whole body trembles. I think I have no option but to love her. Yet, if I did love her, I should be acting wrongly, as she is the sensual's wife. I ought to keep faith with him and love him just as I want him to do with me. If he managed somehow to find out about the love, I know full well it would grieve him. But nevertheless, it would be far worse if I were to be laid low because of her. How sad if such a beautiful woman were not in love or had no lover. How could she be a true courtly lady if she had no true love? There is no man on earth who would not benefit greatly if she loved him. If the essential were to hear tell of it, he should not distress himself too much. He cannot keep her entirely for himself. I am certainly willing to share her with him. Having spoken thus, he uttered a sigh, then lay in bed deep in thought. Later he spoke, saying, Why am I so distressed and alarmed? I do not yet know, indeed I have never known, if she would be willing to take me as her lover. But I shall soon find out. 
If she felt as I do, this agony of mine would disappear. Oh, God, daybreak is so long in coming, I can get no rest. Many hours have elapsed since I came to bed last night. The king stayed awake until morning, which he awaited with impatience, and then he rose and set off on his hunt. But soon he turned back, saying he was very ill, and returned to his chamber to lie down. The sensual was grieved by this, not realizing the cause of the illness or why the king was feverish. His wife was the true reason for it. To please and comfort him, the king had her come and speak with him, whereupon he disclosed his feelings to her, letting her know that he was dying because of her, and that he was, she was well able to bring comfort to him or to cause his death. My lord, said the lady, I must have time to reflect on this. At this stage, I'm not sure what to do. You are a king of great nobility. I am not worthy enough to be the object of your love or passion. If you had your way with me, I know well and am in no doubt that you would soon abandon me and I should be very much worse off. It should come about, if it should come about that I loved you and granted your request, our love would not be shared equally. Because you are a powerful king and my husband is your vassal, you would expect, as I see it, to be the lord and master in love as well. Love is not honorable unless it is based on equality. A poor man, if he is loyal and possesses wisdom and merit, is of greater worth and his love more joyful than that of a prince or a king who lacks loyalty. If anyone places his love higher than is appropriate for his own station in life, he must fear all manner of things. The powerful man is convinced that no one can steal away his beloved over whom he intends to exercise his seniorial right. To this, Equiton replied, My lady, I beg you, do not say such things. Such men are not truly courtly. This is the sort of deal struck between merchants who, to acquire wealth or a large fief, expend much effort for some unseemly purpose. Any wise and courtly lady of noble disposition who sets a high price on her love and is not fickle deserves to be sought after by a rich prince in his castle and loved well and loyally, even if her only possession is her mantle. Those who are fickle in love and resort to trickery end up becoming a laughingstock and are deceived in their turn. We've seen many cases of this. It is no surprise that a man should lose out if his actions warrant it. My dearest lady, I surrender myself to you. Do not regard me as your king, but as your vassal and lover. I swear to you in all honesty that I shall do your bidding. Do not let me die because of you. You can be the mistress and I the servant. You be the haughty one and I the suppliant. So long did the king speak with her and so ardently did he beg for mercy that she promised him her love and gave him her body. By an exchange of rings, they took possession of each other and pledged their faith. They kept this faith well and loved each other dearly. It was later to be the cause of their death. Their love lasted a long time and remained undetected. When they had arranged to meet and speak with each other, the king told his followers he was to be bled in private. The doors of the bedchamber were closed. No one would ever have dared enter without the king's summons. The sensual presided over the court, hearing the pleas and accusations. The king loved the lady for a long time and had no desire for any other woman. He did not wish to marry and refused to permit the subject to be discussed. The courtiers thought ill of him for this, to the point where the matter often came to the ears of the sensual's wife. It distressed her greatly, and she feared losing him. 
So next time she was able to talk to him when she ought to have been full of joy, kissing him, holding him in tight embrace and enjoying herself with him, she wept bitterly and was plunged into grief. The king asked her how this could be. The lady replied, Lord, I am weeping for our love which brings great sorrow to me. You will take a wife, a king's daughter, and leave me. I've heard this mentioned often, and I'm sure it will happen. What would become of me, unhappy wretch? Through you, my death is inevitable, for I know of no other consolation. The king replied with great tenderness, My fair one, do not be afraid. I shall certainly never take a wife or leave you for another. Accept this as the truth and believe me. If your husband were dead, I should make you my queen and my lady. I should not be deterred from this for anyone's sake. The lady thanked him and expressed her gratitude. If he promised not to abandon her for another woman, she would, she said, soon bring about her husband's death. It would be easy to arrange, provided he were willing to help her. He agreed that he would do so. Regardless of the consequences, he would do his utmost to accomplish whatever she commanded. Lord, she said, please come hunting in the forest in the region where I live. Stay in my husband's castle. Be bled there and take a bath on the third day. My husband will be bled and take a bath with you. Make sure you tell him to keep you company. I shall have the baths heated and the two tubs brought in. The water in his bath will be so boiling hot that no mortal man could escape scalding or destruction before he has settled down in it. When he has been scalded to death, summon your vassals and his. Show them how suddenly he died in the bath. The king promised faithfully to do what she wished. Less than three months later, the king went hunting in the region. He had himself bled together with his sensual as a precaution against illness. On the third day, he declared that he would take a bath. The sensual assented to this, and, and the king said, You will bathe with me. The sensual replied, I agree. The lady had the baths heated and the two tubs brought in. As planned, each of the tubs was placed in front of the bed. She had the boiling water brought in for the sensual, who had gone out in search of relaxation. The lady came to speak to the king, and he made her sit down beside him. They lay down on the Lord's bed and took their pleasure. They lay there together. Because of the tub which stood before them, they had the door guarded by a maiden who was to stand there. Suddenly, the sensual returned and banged on the door, which the girl kept closed. He gave it such a violent blow that it was forced open, whereupon he discovered the king and his wife in each other's arms. The king looked up and saw him approaching. To conceal his wickedness, he jumped feet first into the tub, completely naked. He paid no heed to the danger involved and was scalded to death. His evil plan had rebounded on him, whereas the sensual was safe and sound. He saw just what had happened to the king. Seizing his wife immediately, he tossed her head first into the bath. Thus they died together, the king first, then the woman with him. Anyone willing to listen to reason could profit from this cautionary tale. Evil can easily rebound on him who seeks another's misfortune. All this happened as I have described. The Bretons composed a lay on this subject about how Equiton died and about the lady who loved him so dearly. These are the first lines in the Old French. Equiton. Multon este nobre baron, sire de Bretagne, li Breton. Jadis fluent par Prouche, par Curtiès et par Noblesque. 
des aventures qu'au winter, qui a plusieurs gens avenientes, faire les laisse pour remembrance, comme ne m'est une oubliance. Un inférent, so oui contir, qui ne fait ni a oublier, d'écoutant qui mort fou quartiers, sire des nans, justice et race. In my effort to compose lays, I do not wish to omit Bisclavret, for such is its name in Breton, while the Normans name it Garwolf. In days gone by, one could hear tell, and indeed it often used to happen, that many men turned into werewolves and went to live in the woods. A werewolf is a ferocious beast, which, when possessed by this madness, devours men, causes great damage, and dwells in vast forests. I leave such matters for the moment, for I wish to tell you about Biscadlet. In Brittany there lived a baron whom I have heard greatly praised. He was a good and handsome knight who conducted himself nobly. He was one of his lord's closest advisers and was well loved by all of his neighbors. As his wedded wife, he had a woman who was worthy and attractive in appearance. He loved her and she returned his love. But one thing caused her great worry. Each week... He was absent for three full days without her knowing what became of him or where he went, and no one in the household knew what happened to him. One day, when he had returned home in high spirits, she questioned him. Lord, she said, my dear sweet love, I would gladly ask you something if only I dared, but there is nothing I fear more than your anger. When he heard this, he embraced her, drew her towards him, and kissed her. Lady, he said, come ask your questions. There is nothing you can ask which I shall not tell you if I know the answer. In faith, she said, I am relieved to hear this. Lord, I am so fraught with anxiety the days you are apart from me. My heart is so heavy and I have such a fear of losing you that I shall surely die shortly from this unless I soon get help. Please, tell me where you go, what becomes of you and where you stay. I think you must have a lover and if this is so, you are doing wrong. Lady, he said, in God's name, have mercy on me. If I tell you this, great harm will come to me, for as a result I shall lose your love and destroy myself. When the lady heard what he said, she thought it was no laughing matter. She questioned him repeatedly and coaxed him so persuasively that he told her his story, keeping nothing secret. Lady, I become a werewolf. I enter the vast forest and live in the deepest part of the wood where I feed off the prey I can capture. When he had related everything to her, she asked him whether he undressed or remained clothed. Lady, he said, I go about completely naked. Tell me, in the name of God, where do you leave your clothes? That I will not tell you. For if I lost them and were discovered in that state, I should remain a werewolf forever. No one would be able to help me until they were returned to me. That is why I do not wish this to be known. Lord, the lady replied to him, I love you more than the whole world. You must not hide anything from me or doubt me in any way. That would not seem like true love. What have I done wrong? What sin have I committed that you should doubt me in any way? Do tell me. You'll be acting wisely. She tormented and harried him so much that he could not do otherwise but tell her. Lady, he said, beside the wood, near the path I follow, stands an old chapel which often serves me well. 
There, beneath the bush, is a broad stone, hollowed out in the center, in which I put my clothes until I return home. The lady heard this remarkable revelation, and her face became flushed with fear. She was greatly alarmed by the story, and began to consider various means of parting from him, as she no longer wished to lie with him. She sent a messenger to summon a knight who lived in the region, and who had loved her for a long time, wooed her ardently, and served her generously. She had never loved him or promised him her affection, but now she told him what was on her mind. Friend, she said, rejoice. Without further delay, I grant you that which has tormented you. Never again will you encounter any refusal. I offer you my love and my body. Make me your mistress. He thanked her warmly and accepted her pledge, whereupon she received his oath and told him of her husband and what became of him. She described the path he took to the forest and sent him for her husband's clothes. Thus was Blisclavret betrayed and wronged by his wife. Because he was often missing, everyone thought that this time he'd gone away for good. They searched and inquired for him a long while, but as no trace of him was found, they had to let the matter drop. Then the knight married the lady he had loved for so long. A whole year passed, until one day the king went hunting and headed straight for the forest in which Bisclavret was living. When the hounds were unleashed, they came upon Bisclavret, and the dogs and hunters spent the whole day in pursuit until they were just about to capture him, tear him to pieces, and destroy him. As soon as he saw the king, he ran up to him and begged for mercy. He took hold of his stirrup and kissed his foot and his leg. The king saw him and was filled with dread. He summoned all his companions. Lords, he said, come forward. See the marvelous way this beast humbles itself before me. It has the intelligence of a human and is pleading for mercy. Drive back all the dogs and see that no one strikes it. The beast possesses understanding and intelligence. Hurry, let us depart. I shall place the creature under my protection, for I shall hunt no more today. The king then left with Bisclavret following him. He kept very close to the king, as he did not want to be separated from him and had no wish to abandon him. The king, who took him straight to his castle, was delighted and overjoyed at what had happened, for never before had he seen such a thing. He considered the wolf to be a great wonder and loved it dearly, commanding all his people to guard it well for love of him and not to do it any harm. None of them was to strike it, and plenty of food and water must be provided for it. His men were happy to look after the creature, and each day it would sleep amongst the knights, just by the king. It was loved by everyone, and so noble and gentle a beast was it that it never attempted to cause any harm. Wherever the king might go, it never wanted to be left behind. It accompanied him constantly and showed clearly that it loved him. Now hear what happened next. The king held court, and all his barons and those who held fiefs from him were summoned so that they could help him celebrate the festival and serve him all the better. Amongst them, richly and elegantly attired, was the knight who had married Bisclavret's wife. He did not realize and would never have suspected that Bisclavret was so close by. As soon as he arrived at the palace, Bisclavret caught sight of the knight and sped toward him, sinking his teeth into him and dragging him down toward him. He would, have, he would soon have done the knight serious harm if the king had not called him and threatened him with a stick. On two occasions that day, he attempted to bite him. Many people were greatly astonished at this, for never before had he shown signs of such behavior toward anyone he had seen. Throughout the household, it was remarked that he would not have done it without good reason. The knight had wronged him somehow or other, for he was bent on revenge. On this occasion, that, sorry. On this occasion, that was the end of the matter, until the festival came to a close and the barons took their leave and returned home. 
The knight whom Bisclavret attacked was one of the very first to go, I believe. No wonder Bisclavret hated him. Not long afterward, as I understand it, the king, who was wise and courtly, went into the forest where Bisclavret had been discovered. Bisclavret accompanied him, and on the way home that night, the king took lodging in that region. Bisclavret's wife learnt of this, and, dressing herself elegantly, went next day to speak to the king, taking an expensive present for him. When Bisclavret saw her approach, no one could restrain him. He dashed toward her like a madman. Just hear how successfully he took his revenge. He tore the nose right off her face. What worse punishment could have been inflicted on her? From all sides he was threatened, and was on the point of being torn to pieces when a, white, when a wise man said to the king, Lord, listen to me. This beast has lived with you, and every single one of us has seen him over a long period, and has been with him at close quarters. Never before has he touched a soul or committed a hostile act except against this lady here. By the faith I owe you, he has some grudge against her, and also against her husband. She is the wife of the knight you used to love so dearly, and who has been missing for a long time without our knowing what became of him. Question the lady to see if she will tell you why the beast hates her. Make her tell you if she knows. We have witnessed many marvels happening in Brittany. The king accepted his advice. Holding the knight, he took the lady away and subjected her to torture. Pain and fear combined made her reveal everything about her husband, how she had betrayed him and taken his clothes, about his account of what happened, what became of him, and where he went. Since his clothes had been taken, he had not been seen in the region. She was quite convinced that the beast was Bisclavret. The king asked her for the clothes and, whether she liked it or not, made her bring them and return them to Bisclavret. When they were placed before him, Bisclavret took no notice of them. The man who gave the advice earlier called to the king, Lord, you are not acting properly. Nothing would induce him to put on his clothing in front of you or change his animal form. You do not realize the importance of this. It is the most humiliating thing for him. Take him into your bedchamber and bring him the clothes. Let us leave him there for a while, and we shall see if he turns into a man. The king himself led the way and closed all the doors on the wolf. After a while he returned, taking two barons with him. All three entered the room. They found the knight sleeping on the king's own bed. The king ran forward to embrace him and kissed him many times. It was not long before he restored his land to him. He gave him more than I can tell and banished the woman from the country, exiling her from the region. The man for whom she betrayed her husband went with her. She had a good many children who were thereafter recognizable by their appearance. Many of the women in the family, I tell you truly, were born without noses and lived noseless. The adventures you have heard actually took place. Do not doubt it. The lay was composed about Bliscavret to be remembered forevermore. And now the first few lines in the old French of Bliscavret. Quand des lais ferment tramet, ne voyez d'oublier Bliscavret. Bliscavret a nous en Bretagne, garouf la pelant l'Inorman. Jadis le poète ou mourir et sauvent soulet avenir, ou me plusieurs garouf devendrent et es boscaches ne sont tendrent. Garof, seoest best salvage. Laustic. I shall tell you an adventure about which the Bretons made a lay. 
Laustic was the name, I think. They gave it in their land. In French, it is Rosignol. In proper English, Nightingale. At Saint-Malo in that country, there was a famous city. Two knights lived there. They both had strong houses. From the goodness of the two barons, the city acquired a good name. One had married a woman, wise, courtly, and handsome. She set a wonderfully high value on herself within the bounds of custom and usage. The other was a bachelor, well known among his peers for bravery and great valor. He delighted in living well. He jousted often, spent widely, and gave out what he had. He also loved his neighbor's wife. <laughs> he asked her, begged her so persistently, and there was such good in him that she loved him more than anything, as much for the good that she heard of him as because he was close by. They loved each other discreetly and well, concealed themselves and took care that they weren't seen or disturbed or suspected. And they could do this well enough since their dwellings were close, their houses were next door, and so were their rooms and their towers. There was no barrier or boundary except a high wall of dark stone. From the rooms where the lady slept, if she went to the window, she could talk to her love on the other side, and he to her, and they could exchange their possessions by tossing and throwing them. There was scarcely anything to disturb them. They were both quite at ease, except that they couldn't come together completely for their pleasure, for the lady was closely guarded when her husband was in the country. Yet they always managed, whether at night or in the day, to be able to talk together. No one could prevent their coming to the window and seeing each other there. For a long time they loved each other, until one summer, when the woods and meadows were green and the orchards blooming. The little birds, with great sweetness, were voicing their joy above the flowers. It is no wonder if he understands him, them, who he who has love to his desire. I'll tell you the truth about the knight. He listened to them intently, and to the lady on the other side, both with words and looks. At night, when the moon shone, when her lord was in bed, she often rose from his side and wrapped herself in a cloak. She went to the window because of her lover, who, she knew, was leading the same life, awake most of the night. Each took pleasure in the other's sight, since they could have nothing more. But she got up and stood there so often that her lord grew angry and began to question her, to ask why she got up and where she went. My lord, the lady answered him, there is no joy in this world like hearing the nightingale sing. That's why I stand there. It sounds... It sounds so sweet at night that it gives me great pleasure. It delights me so, and I so desire it that I cannot close my eyes. When her lord heard what she said, he laughed in anger and ill will. He set his mind on one thing, to trap the nightingale. There was no valet in his house that he didn't set to making traps, nets, or snares, which he then had placed in the orchard. There was no hazel tree or chestnut that, where they did not place a snare or lime until they trapped and captured him. When they had caught the nightingale, they brought it, still alive, to the Lord. He was very happy when he had it. He came to the lady's chambers. Lady, he said, where are you? Come here, speak to us. I've trapped the nightingale that has kept you awake so much. From now on, you can lie in peace. He will never again awaken you. When the lady heard him, 
she was sad and angry. She asked her lord for the bird, but he killed it out of spite. He broke its neck and its hands. So vicious an act. And threw the body on the lady. Her shift was stained with blood, a little on her breast. Then he left the room. The lady took the little body. She wept hard and cursed those who had betrayed the nightingale, who made the traps and snares, for they took great joy from her. At last, she said, now I must suffer. I won't be able to get up at night or go and stand in the window where I used to see my love. I know one thing for certain. My Lord would think I was pretending. I must decide what to do about this. I shall send him the nightingale and relate the adventure. In a piece of Samite, embroidered in gold and writing, she wrapped the little bird. She called one of her servants, charged him with her message, and sent him to her love. He came to the knight, greeted him in the name of the lady, related the whole message to him, and presented the nightingale. When everything had been told and revealed to the knight, after he had listened well, he was very sad about the adventure, but he wasn't mean or hesitant. He had a small vessel fashioned, with no iron or steel in it. It was all pure gold and good stones, very precious and very dear. The cover was very carefully attached. He placed the nightingale inside, and then he had the casket sealed. He carried it with him always. This adventure was told. It could not be concealed for long. The Bretons made a lay about it, which men call the nightingale. This lay is generally called Le Chétival, the unhappy one, but many people call it Le Quatre Deux, the Four Sorrows. In the city of Nantes, in Brittany, there dwelt a lady distinguished by her beauty, education, and good breeding. There existed no knight in the region with any merit at all, who, having once seen her, would not have fallen in love with her and wooed her. It was not possible for her to love them all, but neither did she wish to repulse them. She was courted constantly because of her beauty and worth and was the object of their attentions night and day. There lived in Brittany four men whose names I do not know. They were exceedingly handsome, brave, and valiant knights, generous, courtly, and liberal. They were held in very high esteem and were amongst the region's noblemen. The four of them loved the lady and strove to perform brave deeds. Each man did his utmost to win her and have her love, taking great pains to woo her for himself. Each one of them thought himself capable of outdoing the others. The lady, who possessed great intelligence, gave careful thought to which of them was more worthy of her love. They all had such great merit that she was unable to choose the best, yet she did not wish to lose all three in order to retain just one. <laughs> to each, she displayed a friendly face. She gave them love tokens and sent her messengers to them. Each was unaware of the other's success but she could not distinguish between them in any way. 
Each one thought he could gain the upper hand by the quality of his service and his entreaties. When knights assembled, each one, if he could, would lead all the rest in performing brave deeds in order to please this lady. They all regarded her as their beloved, wore her love token, a ring, sleeve, or pennant, and used her name as a rallying cry. She loved and retained all four, until one year after Easter, a tournament was proclaimed in the city of Nantes. To meet the four lovers, men came from other regions, French, Norman, and Flemish knights, those from Brabant, Boulogne, and Anjou, and from the immediate neighborhood. On the eve of the tournament, fierce fighting broke out. The four lovers left the city fully armed. Their knights followed them, but the main burden of the combat rested on those four knights. Their opponents, recognizing them by their ensigns and shields, sent knights to oppose them from Flanders and from Aino, ready and equipped for combat. To a man, they were keen to join battle. The lovers saw them approach, but had no thoughts of flight. Lance lowered and at full speed, each one picked his opponent. The blows were so vehement that the four adversaries were unhorsed. A great melee ensued as their men tried to rescue them and swords struck many a blow. From a tower, the lady could see clearly her four knights and their men. She witnessed all four lovers giving a good account of themselves and didn't know which merited her esteem the most. The tournament proper began. The ranks increased and swelled, and many battles were joined that day before the city gates. Her four lovers performed so well that by nightfall, when it was time to leave the field, they'd carried off all the honors. Very foolishly, though, they strayed far from their followers, and for this they paid the price. For three of them were killed, and the fourth was injured and wounded in the groin in such a way that the lance passed right through his body. They were hit by a lateral attack, and all four were unhorsed. Those who had mortally wounded them threw their shields to the ground, grief-stricken on their account, as they had not intended to kill them. A great outcry and clamor arose. Such sorrow had never been heard before. In their grief over the nights, a full 2,000 men unfastened their visors and tore at their hair and their beards, united in their sorrow. Each knight was placed on his shield and carried into the city to the lady who had loved them. As soon as she discovered what had happened, she fell to the ground in a swoon. When she revived, she lamented each one by name. Alas, she said, Whatever shall I do? I shall never again be happy. I loved these four knights and desired each one for his own sake. There were, was a great deal of good in them all, and they loved me above everything. But I made them compete for my love, not wishing to lose them all or have just one. I don't know which of them to mourn the most, but I can no longer disguise or hide my feelings. One of them I see now wounded, and three are dead. 
there remains no comfort for me in this world, so I shall bury the dead, and if the injured knight can be healed, I shall gladly take care of him and provide him with a good doctor. She had him carried into her chamber and then arranged for the others to be laid out for burial, lovingly, nobly, and lavishly arrayed. She gave a large offering and substantial gift to a rich abbey where they were buried. May God have mercy on them. She summoned learned doctors, and the knight lying wounded in her chamber was placed in their charge until he was cured. She visited him often and comforted him very well, but she mourned the others and was grief-stricken at what had befallen them. One summer's day after dinner, the lady was conversing with the knight. She was reminded of her great sorrow and, deep in thought, bowed her face and head. He looked at her, realizing she was lost in thought, and spoke kindly to her. My lady, you're in distress. What are you thinking about? Tell me. Put aside your grief and be comforted. My friend, she replied, I was thinking and recalling your companions. Never will a lady of my lineage, however beautiful, worthy, or wise, love four such men at once and in a single day lose them all, except for you alone who were wounded. You came dangerously close to death yourself, so because of my great love for you all, I want my grief to be remembered. I shall compose a lay about the four of you and entitle it, the four sorrows. When he heard these words, the knight replied quickly, Ah, my lady, he said, compose the new lay, but call it the unhappy one. I shall explain why it should have that title. The others have long since ended their days and used up their span of life. What great anguish they suffered on account of the love they bore for you. But I, who have escaped alive, bewildered and forlorn, constantly see the woman I love more than anything on earth coming and going. She speaks to me in the morning and evening, yet I cannot experience the joy of a kiss or an embrace or any bodily pleasure other than conversation. You cause me to suffer a hundred such ills and death would be preferable for me than life. Therefore, the lay will be named after me and called the unhappy one. Anyone who calls it the four sorrows will be changing its true nature. Upon my word, she replied, I am agreeable to this. Let us now call it the unhappy one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And one more short lay Very complex modern technology. Indeed, indeed. Now I'm having more trouble with the transmitter than with the mic itself. So the last one for the day is uh, the lay of Chevrefoil. It pleases me greatly, and I am eager to relate to you the truth of the lay called Chevrefoil, to say why it was composed and how it originated. Many people have recited it to me, and I have also found it in a written form. 
It concerns Tristram and the Queen. Their love was so pure that it caused them to suffer great distress and later brought about their death on the same day. King Mark was angry with his nephew Tristram, and he dismissed him from his land because of his love for the queen. Tristram made his way to his own region and could not return. He spent a whole year in South Wales where he was born, but then he ran the risk of death and persecution. Do not in any way be surprised, for anyone who loves with great loyalty is severely distressed and forlorn if he cannot satisfy his desires. Tristram was distressed and downcast, and for this reason left his own land and made his way straight to Cornwall, where the queen lived. To avoid being seen, he took to the forest all alone, only emerging in the evening when it was time to take shelter. At night, he took lodging with peasants and poor people and asked them for news of the king's activities. They told him they had heard that a proclamation had been issued summoning the barons to Tintagel. The king wished to hold court there, and everyone would be present at Pentecost. There would be much merrymaking and rejoicing, and the queen would be with them. Tristram received this news with great joy, for she would not be able to travel there without seeing her pass by, without his seeing her pass by. On the day the king set out, Tristram entered the wood along the road he knew the procession would have to take. He cut a hazel branch in half and squared it. When he had whittled the stick, he wrote his name on it with his knife. If the queen, who would be on the lookout, spotted it, on an early occasion she had successfully observed it in this way, she would recognize her beloved stick when she saw it. That was all he wrote, because he had sent her word that he had been there for a long time, waiting patiently and watching out for an opportunity to see her, for he could not possibly live without her. The two of them resembled the honeysuckle which clings to the hazel branch. When it has wound itself round and attached itself to the hazel, the two can survive together. But if anyone should then attempt to separate them, the hazel quickly dies, as does the honeysuckle. Sweet love, so it is with us. Without me you cannot survive, nor I without you. The queen rode along. She looked at the path as it sloped upwards ahead of her, saw the piece of wood, and realized what it was. She recognized all the letters and commanded all those who were escorting her and traveling along with her to stop. She wished to alight and take a rest. They did as she bade, and she made a, moved a good distance away from her companions, calling her faithful servant Brongain to her. She went a little way off the path, and in the woods she found the man she loved, who loved her more than any living thing. They shared great joy together. He spoke freely to her, and she told him of her desires. Then she explained how he could be reconciled with the king, and how disturb, disturbed the king had been at having to banish him. She, he had done it because of the accusation against him. Then she departed, leaving her beloved behind. But when the moment came for them to separate, they began to weep. Tristram returned to Wales until his uncle summoned him. On account of the joy he had experienced from the sight of his beloved, and because of what he had written, Tristram, a skillful harpist, in order to record his words, as the queen had said to him that he should, used them to create a new lay. I shall ver very briefly name it. The English call it goat leaf, and the French chevrefoil. I have told you the truth of the lay I have related here. Assez brièvement le numéré, goat leaf la pelle en anglais, chevrefoil le nom en français. Dites-vous en lai à la vérité, de lai que j'ai ici compté.